Well, uh, my name is Aaron Badenhop, and I'm on staff here with Real Life, and I work on South Campus with the men down there. And uh, I wanted to give a quick shameless plug for the men's and women's retreats, um, more so for the men's retreat, because I'm not going to be at the women's retreat, but uh, yeah, it's going to be a great weekend next weekend. If you guys could at all plan on, on coming, we would love for you to come, and you can check out our website, reallifeosu.com, for more information, um, or look it up on Facebook, but yeah, we'd love, we'd love to have you come, so. Well, one of the things that we've been doing this quarter, if you've been coming for a while, you know this, we have been going through the book of Mark, and one of the ways I wanted to open up talking about the passage that we're going to look at tonight in the book of Mark is by talking to you about an experience that I had my senior year here at Ohio State. My senior year at Ohio State uh, was a pretty amazing year in terms of football, uh, it was the year, it was Jim Trussell's second year, it was the year where we went undefeated and we went to the Fiesta Bowl to play in the national championship game. And uh, I was fortunate enough to actually get tickets to go to Tempe, Arizona to go to this game my senior year of college. It was an awesome experience. But the reason that I bring up this football game is because I want to talk to you a little bit about um, my perspective of who would win this game going into the game because you see... Going into this particular game, we were playing the Miami Hurricanes, and Miami going into this game was really tough. They had won over 20 games in a row. They had a bunch of future players on their team that were going to be big-time NFL players. And if I'm honest with you about my perspective going into this game, I I had some doubts. I hate to admit it, but I I had some doubts. It seemed like everything was going against us uh, in terms of uh, the Buckeyes. but one of the, the awesome things that happened, of course, for those of you who paid any attention to this, maybe you're too young to remember, but uh, the Buckeyes actually won this game in double overtime, and it was a, an awesome, beautiful thing. But the reason, the reason I am, uh, I'm mentioning this game is because uh, I'm giving you a, a little picture of some of the things that we do as human beings. It's our nature as human beings to analyze situations in our lives to analyze situations and sort of size things up and try to figure out what we think is going to happen or, or what we believe. It's part, of, it's part of what we do. In, in this situation with the Fiesta Bowl, I had doubts. I sized things up, I analyzed it, and I had doubts that the Buckeyes were going to win. But in a similar way, I think on a larger scale, this is one thing that we might do and something that's much more important than a football game, which is our faith. It's something that we can do in, in, in terms of our perspective of our relationship with God. Now, I think if we're all honest, uh, when we really think about the fact that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he's coming again, returning to make all things new. I think that if, we're, if many of us in this room are really honest tonight, there's parts of that story that are hard for us to believe sometimes. There's parts of that story that we can have a tendency to doubt. And I think it's important for you to know tonight that if you're an outsider to the Christian faith, you know, sometimes I think that Christians can portray to the outside culture that we have everything together. You know, we have all our ducks in a row. Everything makes sense. We don't have any doubts. We don't have any confusion. We don't have any uncertainty about anything. 
If that's been portrayed to you, if you're an outsider to the Christian faith, I want you to know that that's just not true. That if Christians are really honest with themselves, many of us in many seasons of our life have some points of uncertainty. We have some doubts that we face in our life. But the, the, the question that I want to ask tonight is, what do we do with our doubts? What do we do when we face those uncertainties? What do we do in life when there are things about the Christian faith or there are things that we're supposed to believe about God that it's hard for us to embrace sometimes? What would God have to say for those of us who may be wrestling with some doubt or with some uncertainty about our faith? So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at a passage in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Before we read those verses, I'd like to just take a second and pray. God, I pray that you would be at work in and through this message tonight. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would speak through your word, and I pray that your spirit would move in this place and that you would open people's ears to hear what you would want them to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's take a look at this passage in Mark chapter 9. It says this, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, It convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him to the fire and into into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately. The father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind can be driven out by anything, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so I think it's real easy when we consider that passage. Uh, those of us who have grown up in the church maybe are familiar with that passage, but if, if there are those of you who are not one who's grown up in church, you're probably thinking to yourself, what the heck was that passage about? What, what, what was going on in this passage? Uh, if that's 
what you were thinking, I totally understand. You see, we live in the 21st century. We live in a century where there's been amazing things that have been happening as technology has been advancing, as medicine has been advancing. Uh, We live on a a top-notch campus where there are professors and researchers and students who are gaining and growing in knowledge every single day. And so when we look at a passage like this, I think it's really hard for us sometimes to understand what's going on, being 2,000 years removed from the situation in this passage. The reason I say that is because it's easy for us in the modern era to look at passages like this and think, oh, those primitive people back in the days of Jesus, you know, they didn't really understand the world that we do today. And so to explain the world that they lived in, they had to come up with this crazy idea of of evil spirits to explain crazy things happening like that. Uh, It's really easy to have that type of perspective when it comes to reading a story where there are unclean spirits tormenting a boy, like we saw in this story. But it's important as Christians that we do not have this type of attitude, that we don't embrace what the modern era says about the Bible. It's very important that we take the Bible as God's word and say, you know what, if this is what it says, that there are unclean spirits, we we believe that there really are spiritual enemies uh, in the spiritual realm. I think uh, one of the quotes that I think is, is really good for us to hear in the modern world today is actually from a movie called The Usual Suspects. Have you guys seen this movie before in the 90s? It's kind of old, but it's a good, it's a good movie. Um, there's a quote from this movie that is, is, I think, really profound. It says this, The greatest trick the, dever, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The greatest trick the dever, devil ever pulled... <laughs> This is a tongue twister. (laughs) Dang. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. I I think this is uh, is really true. It's one of the things that we face in the modern area. We we read a passage like this and we think, "This, this this can't be true, this can't be real. But we have to look at this passage and take it, take it for what it is. So, In order to understand what's happening in this passage, I think we really need to understand the context. And to understand the context, we need to think about what's been happening previous to this in the Gospel of Mark. And so there are basically four different types of characters that I want to talk about a little bit right now to help us unpack what's been happening in this passage. The first type of character that we see in the Gospel of Mark in relation to Jesus is the disciples. And for those of you who have been here at Real Life recently, you've seen over and over again, the disciples basically make a fool of themselves in the Gospel of Mark over and over again. They just do not seem to get it. They don't understand who Jesus is. They're expecting a different type of Messiah than Jesus really is. And yeah, they're just kind of mucking things up. It's not going well for them. So the second type of character is the scribes and the Pharisees. And they're the religious leaders at this time. And they kind of take it a step further than the disciples in that they are just openly opposed to Jesus. They, they reject him. They're angry with him. They're always against him. A third type of character is the crowd. Now, uh, one of the really important things to understand about the crowd is that the crowd is really fickle. The crowd in the Gospel of Mark really loves to be entertained. So one way to think about 
the crowd is to think about, you know, those, those people who are on Facebook all the time, sort of like waiting for the next viral video to come out because all they really care about is sort of like, you know, the next most entertaining thing. They just want to be entertained. That's kind of like the crowd in the Gospel of Mark. Always want to be entertained. They're not actually interested in Jesus for who he is. They just want to see what type of crazy stuff he can do. The last type of character is sort of the random person who tends to step out of the crowd, who often tends to be an example of the proper way to respond to who Jesus is. The disciples don't tend to get it. The Pharisees and scribes don't tend to get it. The crowd doesn't tend to get it. But there's usually this random person in the Gospel of Mark that comes on the scene and kind of shows us, this is how we're supposed to respond to who Jesus is. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. And so at the center of this passage is this story about this father who has a son who's tormented by this evil spirit. Let's look again at verses uh, 20 through 22 and, and look a little more closely at what's happening. It says, And they brought the boy to him, to Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You see, what's happening in this story is that the father in this story is desperate. His son is being tormented by this evil or unclean spirit, and he just doesn't know what to do. He's heard about Jesus. He's heard that Jesus can do these crazy things. He can perform these miracles, and so he goes out of his way to take his son to try to find Jesus in hopes that Jesus could do something to help him. The father in this story is desperate, and he's coming to Jesus to see if he can help. But there's a very important a statement that the father makes that kind of helps us to see where the father is at at the same time. In verse 22, the father says this, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. There's a key word in this verse I want you to see, and the key word is the word if. If you can do anything. So here is the father, he's desperate, he's coming to Jesus, he's heard that Jesus could potentially help him, and he comes to Jesus, but when he talks to Jesus, he says, if you can help us, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And what this word if shows us is that there seems to be a level of uncertainty with the father about what Jesus can really do. Maybe he's uncertain that Jesus would really want to help for one thing, or maybe he's uncertain that Jesus really can or is able to help. We don't really know exactly what the doubt is, but in some way, shape, or form, the father is uncertain whether or not Jesus is going to help his son. And Jesus picks up on the man's doubt and uncertainty. He doesn't ignore it. Jesus faces it and addresses it in his response. This is what he says in verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So he repeats back to him, if you can, of course I can. 
Now, when he, when he says all things are possible for one who believes, this is a verse that we could really easily take out of context. You know, this is a verse where we could really easily come to believe, okay, does this mean that I could, uh, you know, sing a quick jingle like, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, and this, all, all that means is like, the State Farm representative is going to like come on the scene and like fix all my problems. You know, is Jesus saying here, yeah, if you just believe, I'm going to be your State Farm representative who comes and makes all, all things better for you, you know? Sorry for those of you who have parents who are State Farm uh, reps, which I know there's some of you in the audience, but um, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Jesus is not some sort of puppet where we can just call up a number and he comes in and, and fixes everything. But I think what Jesus is saying here to the Father is, is this. Look, God can do whatever he wants. God is able to do whatever he wants. But God tends to work through people who believe that he is able. God tends to work in and through people who believe that he is able. All things are possible for one who believes. But look at the man's response to Jesus. In verse 24, he says this. Uh, it says this. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love this, this verse. And the reason I love this verse is because it's so realistic. What I mean when I say it's so realistic is that we are complex human beings. If we're really honest with ourselves, there are times and seasons of our life when we feel torn. There are parts of us who could tend to believe the story about who Jesus is. We can believe the character of God. We can believe that he's good. We can believe that he loves us. We can believe that he's all-knowing, all-powerful. But yet at the same time, if we're really honest, there are parts of us sometimes that doubt those things. There's experiences that we go through sometimes that just don't seem to make sense with what we know of who God is. And so sometimes there are doubts. Sometimes we have uncertainties. And I love that the Bible portrays, even in this father, this reality that sometimes we're torn. Sometimes we believe, yet there's a part of us that doesn't believe. So I think what's important to see in this passage is that there's, there's kind of a couple different ways that we can respond to our doubts. What we see in the Gospel of Mark is that there's uh, the scribes and the Pharisees that have doubts about who Jesus is. That kind of characterizes their impression of who Jesus is from beginning to end. But the interesting thing that happens with the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, when it comes to Jesus is... What they do with their doubts about who Jesus is, is they have a posture of rejection towards who Jesus is. In other words, the doubts that, or uncertainties they have about who Jesus is leads them to a posture of, of, of rejection and of basically being against Jesus to the point of conspiring to kill him. So that's what the Pharisees and the scribes did with their doubts about who Jesus is. But the beautiful thing that we see in this passage is that the Father portrays a different type of way to respond to our doubts. Because you see, the Father is desperate. The Father doesn't have anywhere else to turn. 
And certainly there is a part of him, a big part of him that believes that Jesus can help his son. And if if we're honest, when we look at this passage, the way that Jesus responds, we know that it would be better, it would be more ideal if the father had a complete and full faith without uncertainty to start with. That's something that it would be good for us to strive for. But the father in this story, that's not where he's at. That's not, that's not where he's at in this story. The reality that he's facing is that he has some uncertainty about whether or not Jesus wants to help or can help his son. But what's beautiful is that this father gives us an example of the correct posture to have in the midst of our doubts. That rather than um, having our doubts lead us to the point of rejecting Christ and turning away from him, the beautiful thing is that what this father does is the, the doubts lead him to have a posture of dependence upon Jesus. The doubts don't lead him away from Jesus. The doubts lead him to Jesus with greater force of dependence upon him because he has nowhere else to turn. And so he looks to Jesus as his hope. There's a quote uh, I'd like to, to read to you now from uh, N.T. Wright. He says this, Jesus' mighty works such as casting out demons belong with the story which Jesus is telling. They take place in the context of what is called faith, which turns out to be the recognition that Israel's God is is active in and through Jesus. They raise the question of Jesus' authority and status. They appear to be a vital part of what Jesus describes as the breaking in of the kingdom, not least in terms of the battle with Satan and the accuser. For Jesus and the evangelists, they signaled something far deeper that was going on, namely, the real battle of the ministry, which was not a round of fierce debates with keepers of orthodoxy, but head-on war with the Satan. Now, I know that 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 quote is a little bit complex. Maybe you didn't catch all of it, but basically here is what, what he's trying to say. What's happening in this passage, the main point you need to understand in this passage is that Jesus is showing that the kingdom of God is victorious over the kingdom of this world, that Jesus is the king and he is the victor over the enemy and evil spirits in this world. He has won the battle and he will win the battle finally and in full in the end upon his return. This is the message of this passage, that Jesus is king and he is victorious over the evil spirits in this world. Jesus is king. And what this passage is saying is that there is a rightful way to respond to the person of Jesus. There is a proper way to respond to the person of Jesus. And the Father demonstrates to us the proper way to respond even in the midst of our doubts. Even in the midst of our uncertainty, the Father chooses to trust in Jesus. So what does this mean for us tonight? Now, if you're here tonight and you consider yourself to be an outsider to the Christian faith, it's really important for you to know as you consider Christianity, if you're someone who's seeking, trying to figure out what you believe about Christianity, it's really important for you to know that you do not have to be free of all doubts in order to begin to place your faith in Jesus and begin to try to walk with him. Because the reality is that if you talk to most Christians in this room tonight, we are not free 
100% of doubts and uncertainties sometimes in our life. So if you are considering Jesus, you do not have to have it all together. You do not have to answer every single question perfectly before you can begin this process of following Jesus. You have the opportunity tonight, if you're an outsider of the Christian faith, it's likely that you have some sort of doubts about who Jesus is. So you, could, you have the option of one of two things. You can take the posture of the scribes and the Pharisees and have those doubts lead you to a place where you reject Jesus. Or you could do what the Father does in this story. These doubts could lead you to dependence and desperate trust in who Jesus is. You can ask Jesus to come and help you to improve your faith, to show you who he really is. But what does this mean for those of us here tonight who are already Christians? What, the, what does this mean for those of us who have already been trying to walk with Jesus, whether it be just for a few days or for many, many years? I think it's really important that you understand something. If this hasn't been clear to you before, you don't have to have it all together. You don't have to be someone who pretends that you don't have any doubts sometimes. You know, if there's some things that are uncertain to you, you can be honest about that. You can be honest about that with other Christians here in real life. You can be honest about that especially with God. Because it's really important for you to know that you don't, if you have doubts or uncertainties, you don't have to sweep it under the rug and pretend everything's okay and you have it all together. You know, I think one of the things that can, can tend to happen for us as Christians is that as we walk through life, there are times when things are going really well, and it's, it's really easy to believe this stuff, you know? It's really easy to believe, well, God loves me, and God, God cares about me, things are going well, and so, you know, maybe this isn't a season of my life where I'm experiencing a lot of doubts, but what can tend to happen over time is that you hit a rough patch in life, and it's really hard to know what to do in those times of life. It's really easy in those times when you're, when you're experiencing something really painful that doesn't seem to mesh with who you think that God is. It's really easy to have a lot of confusion and to think, what do, what do I do with this? You know, should I, should I talk to people about how I feel? Because it seems like everyone else is okay. It seems like everyone else has it all together. It seems like everyone else believes this fully and never has any doubts, never has any uncertainty. But it's, that's, not, that's not reality. All of us, in one season of life or another, go through a phase where some doubts come and we really have to question whether or not we truly believe this. But I think the thing for you to do tonight is to look at the Father in this story and the way that he responds to Jesus as King. The way that he responds is having this posture where he says, Lord, I believe but there's parts of me that don't believe and I can be honest with that, about that with you. But help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Please pray with me. God, I just pray for all of us here tonight. Lord, I, I believe it's very probable in a room this size that there are some people here who are facing some doubts and uncertainty. Lord, we don't, don't have all the answers. Doesn't always make sense. But Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in such a way that people would turn to you. That even in the midst of their uncertainty and doubt, that you would protect them. That you would not allow people in this room to allow themselves to reject you and turn away from you and depend upon themselves to seek the answers to their questions. But instead, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in such a way that we would draw close to you 
we would be honest with you about where we're at, and we would desperately ask you to help. In Jesus' name, amen.